0: Episode 57 here at Portal Point. On July 13, 1915, the ship came under the strongest ice pressure to date. Shackleton was in conference with Worsley and Wilde as the wind rose up and the ice began grinding against the hull. Shackleton prophesied that the ship would not last. Innate pragmatism overriding affected optimism. He advised Worsley to make what preparations he could for abandoning ship though no firm time for the event could be estimated. Where Wilde took this insight on face value, Worsley demonstrated reserves of optimism betraying his inexperience with sea ice and hoped to keep his rightfully proud record of never losing a vessel in his charge, which stood until later in the drama. Even with this grim discussion out of the way, the expedition's leaders didn't alter their mean in interactions and routines, and anyone who felt misgivings about the future of the Endurance wouldn't find their ideas reinforced by their superiors. Actual contingency actions, on the other hand, were impossible to misinterpret. On the 21st of July, Shackleton ordered the decks cleared in case the dogs needed bringing back on board. On the 22nd, pressure ice rafting up just 30 yards from the ship saw the sledges brought in close and loaded with emergency supplies and the re-establishment of four-hour watches. On the 23rd, All stores that could fit were brought on deck for ready access should they need to abandon ship. On the 1st of August, rafting ice destroyed the dogloos and damaged the ship's rudder. The Endurance listed to port as the ice trapping her increasingly came under the pressure exerted on the ice by a sustained gale. Shackleton wrote of giant blocks of ice leaping into the air as readily as cherry stones fly from pinching fingers, and Green Street, after witnessing pressure ridges forming while out on a dog run, recorded his idea that should similar pressure come to bear on the ship, that the ship would not last long. The pressure on the hull increased until, timbers screeching and groaning, the interior beams began to buckle. All hands donned their warm winter issue clothing and put up small bundles of indispensable personal items, ready for a quick departure. The gale eased after blowing the ship and its surrounds almost 40 nautical miles to the north. As the pressure eased, the ship dropped back to an even keel in a small pool of water, which quickly froze over. The arrangement of surrounding sea ice and bergs, previously so slow to change as to appear constant and familiar, was completely altered by the effects of the gale. Hurley, traipsing about the new landscape with his photographic apparatus, wrote of his appreciation of the new shapes and perspectives the rafted ice and the refreezing leads offered him, but also of how much the alterations unsettled him, an unusually bumbly note in his otherwise upbeat diary. The easing of the pressure led the crew to resume their routines, the altered surrounds being the only reminder of their fearful preparations for the end of the Endurance. Bold talk in the Ritz about the Endurance's ability to take all icy comers prompted Shackleton, experiencing another rare lapse of optimism, to recount the parable of the pissed mouse, but the ship's recent performance under tests and the returning sun. Fueled a sense of invincibility among those aboard the Endurance. Tom Crean began training the pups, by this point 70 odd pounds each. The shift from pampered pets to work animals pleased them not at all. They rolled on their backs, kicked their legs above their portly bellies and howled, but with the aid of an experienced lead dog, Crean gradually forged the beginnings of a working team. Pressure came on again on the 26th of August, but remained a low grade affair until the 2nd of September when the ship leapt up from a particularly sharp pinch, resettling at a steeper list of port. Timbers groaning and beams bulging as though balloons about to burst. Doorways warped, jamming closed doors shut and preventing open doors closing, and ironwork in the engine room distorted. Everyone thought the endurance was fucked. And then the pressure eased off again and everyone adapted to the new normal to the extent that McNeish, the crew member with the most intimate knowledge of what a wooden ship could and could not take, felt confident enough of their eventual release from the icy trap that he began fashioning a new wheelhouse for the helmsman. Someone started a book, taking bets on when the ship would sail clear of the ice. Blind optimism or genuine hope, I'm not sure, but certainly no one was prophesying doom. James and Wordy, each record frustration at what they felt constituted a scientific failure for their year away. Wordy also recorded he felt sick of Shackleton's practical jokes at the expense of the scientists. One aspect in which I find myself drawn to Scott's temperament ahead of Shackleton's is how they viewed science and scientists. Scott found scientific methods, equipment and insights fascinating and attended on his scientific charges almost as an apprentice attends on their master. I think Scott would have made a pretty good scientist himself if his life played out differently. Shackleton seems to have considered scientists as a means to an end and little more. He respected Wade's climbing skills and ice experience and respected James's prowess as a rugby player, but didn't take much interest in their work and seems to have used mild antagonism and ridicule to the scientists as a mechanism by which to avoid alienating himself from the mess deck. September was quiet. The days lengthened, the temperature rose, and Clark's sampling showed the start of the plankton bloom that seized the southern ocean switch from the clear water wasteland to the most productive body of water on the planet. Spring was coming, and the crew's confidence in the ship's integrity remained high. Having seen it survive strong pressure, largely unscathed, they felt sure the endurance could hold on until the pack ice broke out. Until the 30th, when the ship received the worst shaking the ice had inflicted, This time the pressure only lasted an hour, but the gradual increase in the power the ice applied in each subsequent episode formed a disturbing pattern. In such matters, it's the right tail outliers that will kill you, not the mean or the mode. This third onslaught left the ship with buckled decks and bent beams, and even so the optimism held, most people maintaining that the endurance stood a better than even money chance of making it out of the ice. Time to make donuts! Part 2. I'm in the Carpenters' Hut at Base W. In mid-October, the officers and scientists returned to their original berths and McNeish dismantled the Ritz as temperatures rose. On the 15th, the general thaw led to the ice flitting directly beneath the ship. The Endurance, afloat for the first time since the ice consolidated around her, made a 100 yards of headway before the ice stemmed their progress once more. A frustratingly tantalising glimpse of what might be if they kept the ship's timbers together long enough to exit the pack. On the 16th, the ice reigned in hopes raised the previous day when the ice pinched the ship and pitched her over to a 20 degrees list to port in a single action, the list gradually increasing to 30 degrees. This threw all men, dogs and stores into disarray. Buttons were nailed to the decks to give men and dogs some purchase on the new slopes, and the men took their dinner on their knees, seated stadium fashion on the floor. On the 19th, the mercury fell like the barometer sprung a leak, and the pressure came on with the wind, passing through the surrounding ice like a shockwave, pressing it on the ship like nothing experienced prior, when it reached the tiny lead in which the endurance floated. The ice made a continuous racket as it moved against and around the ship, and people became dulled to the alarming cacophony. On the 24th though, an especially violent upheaval and report brought everyone on deck to find Shackleton on the ice, grimly inspecting the stern post. Caught at the confluence of three different torsions in the ice, the hull was being twisted out of shape. The distortion threw the stern post out of true, and the resulting gaps allowed water to flood in with the sort of persistence and speed that sometimes gives the impression that water possesses agency and eagerness. Rickinson and Kerr rigged the portable Downton pump and got up steam enough to run the engine room bilge pumps in a race between flames and rising waters that might put those flames out, similar to that recounted in episodes covering the egress from the ice of the Discovery and the Francaise. The pumps running at full speed couldn't keep up with the water rushing in past the stern post. The hand pumps came into play with all hands but those occupied in other essential tasks, taking 15 minute spells at the handles. While men frantically tried, ineffectually, to dig trenches in the ice to ease the pressure on the ship, Worsley, Greenstreet and Hudson clambered into the bunkers, shoveled aside the blubber-impregnated coal, and tried to thaw the bilge pump's intake pipe, still frozen solid after its uninterrupted winter slumber, with buckets of boiling water. It took a blowtorch and men working in shifts through the night to clear the inlet, but the pumps eventually gained on the water through these ministrations. McNeish put his skills to task building a coffer dam to contain the rising waters in the engine room. I want you to picture this old, for a sailor, man up to his waist in the ice cold water, concentrating hard on his task in an effort to save the ship. There's self-interest there, but also selflessness. McNeish probably knew best that the ship was doomed, but I think he put himself in treacherous and painfully uncomfortable circumstances for 28 hours straight not because he thought it would save the day, but because it was the correct thing to do. And we'll come back to why I think that mental image is important later. Through the day, the men began preparing stores, ready for the order to abandon ship. Worsley gathered his navigational instruments and materials, even tearing pages out of books containing any potentially useful information in the ship's library of Antarctic literature. Hurley wrapped his photographic prints in waterproof cloth, ready for a lightweight departure that would still afford a pictorial record of the voyage. By the following morning, McNeish's sustained efforts stemmed the worst of the sternpost leak, and he began applying concrete in the dead space between the two false bulkheads comprising his cofferdam, a solid response to the emergency, but one that renewed pressure at that point might yet overcome, or pressure on other parts of the hull might yet make moot. With all steam and hand pumps online, McNeish's cofferdam holding its own and stores moved forward to raise the sternpost some way out of the water, the ship was temporarily out of danger. On the 26th, two days after the sternpost first sprang, Shackleton watched the ship warp along its entire length as the ice continued its assault. He ordered the whaler and the two cutters lowered. The motorboat remained on its davits, being less practical a prospect for working without a parent vessel. During a lull in the onslaught, a brace of ten emperor penguins approached the ship and regarded it for several minutes, and emitting a melancholy chorus. I've not encountered emperor penguins, and grant that perhaps their more usual calls are melodious and peppy, but I've yet to hear a noise made by any penguin that could be called anything other than a tuneless honking, so maybe this was just an especially dire example of that behaviour. But the sound prompted MacLeod, one of the more superstitious sailors, to consider the penguin's song a dirgeful prophecy, stating... Will none of us get back to our homes again? The pressure and the pumping continued through the night and into the 27th, the ice gradually rising in noisy, grinding power, and the pumping increasing in pace until, at four o'clock, the ship's stern shot up, the rudder and sternpost torn away. Settling down on her abused rump again, the ice pressed in at the sides, forcing the decking to boat upward. Ice tore away the keel. The Endurance no longer constituted a ship, but a lot of wood temporarily at the top of the sea. At five o'clock, Shackleton gave the order to abandon ship. They lowered stores from the davits and dropped the dogs down canvas slides, then climbed down after them to watch the ship's death throes from the ice. Hurley wrote of his final moments in the former Ritz, knee-deep in water, the salient impression being that of the clock still ticking out its noisy approximation of the passing of time. The warm familiarity contrasted against the chilly, rising water, and it rattled him. Wilde went forward and woke the exhausted Howe and Bakewell, trying to sleep in the midst of all the violence and noise, announcing, ''She's going, boys. I think it's time to get off.'' As Shackleton left the ship, he looked briefly down into the engine room to see the machinery break free of its stays and crash into the port bulkhead. He ran the blue ensign up the mast to the cheers of his crew before climbing from the endurance. The ship's emergency lighting flickered as the electrical supply gave out over the course of the night, adding to the impression, already a potent part of the mariner's psyche, that the ship was a living thing in its death throes. Tents went up on the flattest available ice, a hundred yards from the wreckage. Each man received a complete issue of new winter clothing and drew lots to distribute the 18 reindeer skin sleeping bags. McNeish received his gratefully, noting this as the first good luck of his life, but he also recorded the apparent rigging of the drawer. All of the officers received the less desirable woollen sleeping bags. The ice didn't let anyone get much sleep that night, Besides the noise it made as it ground itself against the remains of the ship, ice cracked beneath the tents, necessitating the men turn out and shift their new homes three times. In the morning light, Hurley joined Shackleton, who hadn't slept, in retrieving some cases of fuel from the wreckage and making up some hot milk, serving it to the men still in their tents before calling them to muster. Shackleton announced they would march for Snow Hill Island, site of Nordenwell's winter sojourns, or Robertson Island, featuring fewer articles and supplies than the former Swedish expedition's winter quarters, but closer to their current location and current driven path. From either destination they would strike out for Paulette Island and the shelter and stores secured there, on Shackleton's advice, by Lieutenant Irizar, while sailing south aboard the Uruguay in search of the Swedes. That would put them in the path of Norwegian whalers in the summer months, Or at least give them a shot at island hopping to the whaling enterprises at Deception Island. Even if they arrived to find no one in residence, they could fashion a ship from the resources available there and head for the Falklands. That multi-stage plan might seem overly ambitious, but it's less so than the ITAE itself, and it carries more fail-safes than what actually occurred. The only thing that prevented their following this course was the impossibility of the first step hauling the boats over the ice at the projected 5 to 10 miles per day. They planned to travel light, Shackleton heeding Amundsen's lesson that to risk facing some contingencies with less than complete tool sets was better than to try carrying everything for every possible circumstance when speed and distance are of the essence. Each man was allowed two pounds of personal possessions in addition to his one pound of newly issued tobacco. Hussey received an exemption for his zither banjo, it being deemed too important a morale to leave behind. Shackleton demonstrated his commitment to the new rule by throwing his gold watch, cigarette case and a handful of sovereigns onto the ice, a fortune in the eyes of the sailors made worthless by circumstances. He also chucked in his Bible a gift from Queen Alexandra after tearing out the flyleaf with its dedication, Psalm 23 and some pages from the book of Job featuring allusions to ice. McNeish, superstitious about Bibles, picked up the book when no one was looking. Vincent, superstitious about gold, picked up Shackleton's watch when no one was looking. Everyone pared the tools of their trade down to the bare minimum, and the pile on the ice swelled as military uniforms, excess sextants, superfluous cooking utensils and spare carpenters' tools were deemed unnecessary for the immediate survival of the crew. McNeish helped Wordy convert some tartan plaid his sister gave him into a shirt and trousers, a striking sartorial statement among the more subdued browns and beiges of the Gabardine Burberry clothing worn by the hoi polloi. McNeish and McLeod fashioned sledge runners to fit under the boats, turning them into large, heavy sledges, over a ton each, even without any stores on board. Shackleton led a groundbreaking team comprising Hudson, Hurley, and Wordy. These four picked the best possible path and broke the sastrugi and pressure ridges down to ease the path of those to follow. An hour after the vanguard left the wreckage camp, Tom Crean shot three of the youngest puppies and Macklin's dog, Sirius, pupped in one of the earlier litters and hadn't taken to harness training. A lot of energy went into looking after these dogs, but the least useful animals, being considered more of a drain on the available resources than their work output could justify, were discarded in the same way as non-living, non-essential items. Mrs Chippy, deemed likely to end up torn to pieces by the dogs on the level playing field presented by the ice, also received a bullet. Everyone in the crew felt fond of the charismatic cat, whom many regarded as the ship's mascot and talisman. Worsley wrote of Mrs Chippy. The carpenter has a very fine cat who is known as Mrs Chippy. She is wonderfully lithe and gracefully active, like a miniature tiger. She is full of character, and one never knows what she will do next. A favourite trick of hers is to walk around the ship on the top iron rail, one inch, and this morning she walked up the rigging exactly after the manner of a seaman going aloft, and then walked down again unaided. Many felt sad at Mrs Chippy's demise, but McNeish was distraught at having his feline companion taken from him and destroyed, this incident permanently colouring his relationship with Shackleton. Seven dog teams began relaying loads of stores and equipment up to where the groundbreaking team had reached, and at the rear, fifteen men hauled two of the boats. The boats, light enough when on water, made extremely heavy sledges absent Archimedes' principle. Three hours' work yielded less than a mile of progress by the time the men turned in at night. Poor weather, combining high temperatures and wet snow, limited them to half a mile the following day, and deep snow further limited them to a quarter mile the day after that. Shackleton convened a meeting with Worsley, Wild, and Hurley, and the consensus arose that trying to sledge with the boats was a non-starter. To the relief of all involved, the idea of reaching Roberts or Snow Hill Islands with the boats was chucked. Marching on Graham Land without the boats was considered, but the unknown nature of the ice between them and their goal precluded that course, as meeting with even a single lead of open water would stymie their efforts entirely. Instead, they would camp on the ice and ride it northward, hopefully reaching striking distance of Paulette Island as the ice broke up on approaching open Ocean. The crew established Ocean Camp, and shuttled back and forth to the wreck site, dubbed Dump Camp, to salvage food, materials and equipment to make their new home more homely. Uh, episode 57, part whatever, at Port Circumcision, Peter and Ireland, south end of the Le Maire Channel. <sighs> McNeish supervised the use of chisels, saws and block and tackle to cut away the deck above the storehouse that formerly formed the Ritz, three and a half tons of stores retrieved through the aperture justifying the hard work in waist-deep, freezing cold water. Howe and Bakewell found Hurley's glass plate negatives in the darkroom, though other accounts have Hurley retrieving these personally by breaking through the walls of the refrigerator unit, stripping to the waist and submerging in the icy water therein, four feet deep by this stage of the ship's disintegration. However they came to light, Hurley and Shackleton broke the 500 and some exposures out of their soldered tin protective casings, selecting 100 black and white and 20 colour images, for either their documentary properties or their photographic excellence, for posterity, and smashing the remainder to prevent Hurley trying to add to the saved cache. The selected negatives were then re-soldered into tin cases for transport aboard the boats when the ice broke up. Hurley's pictorial account of subsequent events would have to rely on his pocket camera and three rolls of plastic film. Keep in mind that prior to mass production in the standard 12, 24 and 36 exposure canisters familiar to any living person who took a photograph prior to the year 2000, professional photographers tended to wind their own rolls, incorporating some hundreds of exposures in each cartridge or cassette or canister or whatever patent pending design receptacle their camera happened to accept. So that three rolls might represent quite a few shots. Otherwise, the rule of two pounds of personal gear per person held, in spite of the cessation of sledging. McNeisha's recently completed wheelhouse came to Ocean Camp to act as a queue store named the Rabbit Hutch, housing the food in hand and the three additional tons salvaged from the increasingly dangerous to visit wreckage. Two volumes of the Encyclopaedia Britannica salvaged from the wreckage proved immensely popular despite the truncated nature of the information they held. I should note that Thomas Ord Leeds records there being five volumes of the Encyclopaedia Britannica. For those of you born sometime after 1990, Encyclopaedia with a hard copy version of the internet with better citations but less porn. It must have been frustrating to only be able to settle arguments over matters that started with one or two letters of the alphabet, but in the absence of libraries, bookshops and high-speed optic fibre nodes, information caches, such as those volumes, are worth their weight in gold. Purley constructed a stove for Green's new galley, a space defined by fences comprising retasked sails, later improved with snowblock walls. McNeish constructed a lookout platform using spars and decking. A lashed-together mast rose above this minimalist crow's nest, and from it flew the Union Jack, given to the expedition by the King, and the flag of the Royal Clyde Yacht Club, under whose regulations they'd set sail. Three of the new-designed dome tents and two older-style polar tents ringed the galley and platform, their occupants carefully chosen by Shackleton to balance out complementary traits and to separate potentially troublesome combinations. The dog lines formed an outer perimeter to the camp. I forget what part I'm up to, I'm on the shoreline at Danco Island, just below the former site of Base O. A daily routine of seal steaks for breakfast, dog maintenance, hunting or other team-related tasks in the morning, make-do and mend in the afternoon, and penguin hoosh, now with added blubber chunks, for dinner, quickly established the new equilibrium. While no one could escape the boredom of the fair, neither could they complain of going hungry, at least at first. They weren't feasting, but given the personal experiences of Shackleton, Wild and Crean, and the general knowledge of starvation attendant on many past polar expeditions, the marooned men knew they weren't too badly off on their portions. Shackleton proved reluctant at this point to order the second cutter brought up from dump camp, or to seek to bolster food stocks in a manner that might seem counterintuitive from our present day perspective. He didn't order that every animal encountered be killed and added to the larder. Ord Lees, already unpopular on account of his fussiness, gained additional ire from the boss for always citing the stores as a concern. But Shackleton never changed his mind about treating the hunting of seals and penguins as a casual rather than an urgent matter. Considering it a morale problem, if the crew saw their food cache extend to the point it suggested a longer stay on the ice than present projections suggested. Hopefully the final instalment of episode 57, recorded on Deception Island at the Floating Dock. Reactions to their marooning varied. Frank Hurley's diary is a record of almost pure optimism and self-contained mindfulness. The perilous situation the sinking of the Endurance placed him in didn't diminish his appreciation of the natural beauty of the Weddell Sea. The situation they faced put his pragmatic inventiveness to good use and presented new photographic opportunities. Lee's diary features speculations about exploration a hundred years hence, nailing predictions about pocket radio-telephonic devices, but not quite on the mark with radio-transmitted sustenance, or his speculations about humanity attempting to reach the centre of the earth, once having fully explored the earth's surface. Carpenter McNeish, frustrated that his idea to fashion a sloop from the available materials, something well within his skills, went ignored, and furious at the dispatch of Mrs Chippy, became more sullen than usual, but kept himself busy with fabrications. Hey, um, but, I'm going down to Market Boundary by Hank. Anything extra I should know about that in terms of interpreting it for people? The, the beach here was the runway of the first flights in Antarctica by Hubert Wilkins yep. in 1928. 1928. They tried to fly off the sea ice, but it was getting too too loose. Yep. They tried to fly off floats, but the petrols and prions kept flying up into the propeller and damaging it and okay. themselves. So they put wheels on the plane, but they couldn't get a long enough runway to make the transcontinental flight that he wanted to make. So he only ever had enough fuel to get to the peninsula and back. Okay, ninety twenty. And wasn't there a runway up the back here somewhere as well? Yeah, the the British built a proper runway for their. It's up here somewhere. Otters. But uh, that's been. You can't. You can't really can't make see it out. It now because of the sixty-eight. Uh, sixty. I oh, thought sixty-seven. Ross said sixty-eight this morning. I heard sixty. I said 68 and 71 being the most recent, and it was 68 that sent the lahar down the hill that damaged correct. the hut. Wiped out the Chilean base, and also a gravesite here that was covered as well. So the gravesite was found out at sea. The the, okay. head st- the, the the wooden markers were found out on the water, and they've just been placed back on land. So that hangar was built for the 1928? No. It wasn't. That was built by the British, That correct? was built by the Brits. In 19... 19- Sixty one. Sixty one, oh, okay. Yeah. But the Brits were setting up shop here in forty four as part of Taborin. Okay. <laughs> it's a This this is the glamour of podcasting, mate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did I just interrupt there. That's okay. Yeah. The script hasn't changed. Okay, there's no other other sites down there. There's a, a derelict You're, site here. You'll see the tractor? As you're moving through, the the Caterpillar tracks of the Massey-Ferguson tractor that okay. they were using to tow aircraft around. But that's that's about it. So really no one's been here since 68? They haven't bothered to... No, they didn't, didn't re-establish. And the British were only here till... Till the volcano. Till the volcano as well, yeah. So the Chileans and the British were both on here? Yeah. So when it erupted, was it just sort of heat or was it no there's big ash clouds yeah. and there was a lahar came down the side of the mountain down and, through here, right? Yeah, so you can actually see the track so of the, the lahar a, up there or a, a lahar is where a, a tarn or a lake or mud, yeah. comes down as mud uh-huh. and it washed through one of the huts and you can actually see where the hut has collapsed uh-huh. as the foundations were washed out Ord Lee's diary features speculations about. Exp- oh, done that. Carpenter McNeish, frustrated that his idea to fashion a sloop from the available materials, something well within his skills, went ignored, and furious at the dispatch of Mrs. Chippy, became more sullen than usual, but kept himself busy with fabrications and alterations only a carpenter could conjure in that era. Using nails drawn from wood, salvaged from the wreck, and his remaining tools a saw, a hammer, a chisel, and an adze. McNeish began altering the boats to better take rough water. With McLeod's assistance, he lifted the gunnels up half as high again as they already were, the better to breast waves without taking water, though making rowing difficult due to the unusually high new position at the Rollocks. When new caulking proved necessary, he again improvised using lampwick liberally infused with Marston's oil paints in lieu of pitch, sealing the seams with seal blood. Marston... Besides providing essential caulking materials, resold everyone's boots, and Hurley began experimenting with improvised crampons, each anticipating heavy slogging in difficult terrain. Everyone paid particular attention to the navigational revelations wrought by Worsley's sextant shots, taken whenever the weather allowed. Shackleton banked heavily on a northwest drift, but it might be that the ice would carry them northeast, or perhaps even stall current knowledge of Weddell Sea circulation didn't allow any firm predictions, and if they didn't reach Paulette Island that year, they might be up Shit Creek. Idleness and the stress of their predicament wore nerves thin. Audley's snoring, in addition to other annoying traits, saw him take the brunt of camp resentment. Uncharacteristically for a man so careful to foster amity and cohesion, Shackleton allowed Audley's tentmates to oust the man, who set up his new home alone in the rabbit hutch. Worsley sarcastically diarised the occasion as warranting lamentations. Some authors account this as a means for Shackleton to discredit Audley's, whose morose calculations over the stores in his care, while entirely accurate, might have dented crew morale. Shackleton knew his gamble on their drift, and his endorsement of casual rather than frantic hunting might shaft everyone in the long run, but felt certain that Audley's correct but unhelpful Cassandra Act could shaft everyone in the short term. I'll buy that assessment, but think it might also have served the castaways well to have the odd bird sleeping on top of the very stores he was charged with caring for, so much the better to stem pilfering. I'll digress at this point to note that I feel some empathy for Thomas Ord Lees. He seems to have been happy in his own company, absorbed by his own interests, and his writing indicates a long romantic streak and a capacity for observations and insights lost on many others. I don't like that he shirked his work, and it seems only his open acceptance of his own laziness that prevented anyone from taking the matter as warranting official rebuke. But like Audleys, I'll generally cleave to an unpleasant truth far more readily than a comforting lie, and I am, as a result, generally deemed something of an odd bird. This leaves me with few friends in most circumstances, and I don't much care. So while I empathise with Audleys, I've never found myself feeling sorry for him. He doesn't seem to have felt sorry for himself, the abuses heaped upon him, never provoking more than a response of, ''Now really, you shouldn't say things like that.'' Where similar slights against a similarly built and trained man might have seen them issue invitations to fisticuffs, or, among the Germans, dueling. The crew generally disliked Lee's because his fastidious attention to stores and his fear of starvation made him miserly in the daily allowances. His tentmates disliked him as his hoarding cluttered up their space with junk, and his absent-mindedness often saw the hooshpot turn up cold, when it was Audley's turn to collect the food. Shackleton disliked Audley's for his fawning manner in the presence of his own knighthood and told him so, Audley's taking the information at face value and recording it dutifully in his diary. Carolyn Alexander, whose account of the expedition in her 1999 book Endurance, featured among the resources I used in assembling my notes for this episode, also wrote Mrs Chippy's Last Expedition, an account of the Waddell Sea Expedition in the form of a journal kept by McNeish's cat. In this fur fiction before furry was mainstream, even Mrs Chippy holds Audlees in disdain. If my measure of the man is accurate, he would have given no fucks about his popularity and likely would have been quietly happy to have his own space. To the benefit of the crew, his attentiveness to duty could have brooked no favouritism. With Audlees in the rabbit hut, no one would cheat their shipmates of food. Digression finished. By mid-November, progress northward and the coming summer saw camp temperatures become, for men accustomed to consistent tens below zero degrees Celsius, uncomfortably hot. The ice surface became slushy and men regularly fell through patches of rotting ice, receiving a soaking most people not living in the same circumstances would talk about for the rest of their lives as one of the most existentially confronting moments they ever experienced, but which they had no choice but to brush off as nothing unusual. Leeds began to open up. As everyone lay in their sleeping bags on the evening of the 21st of November, Shackleton called out, She's going! All hands turned out to watch what was left of their ship lift its stern and sink beneath the ice, gravity winning its battle against positive buoyancy as the thawing ice loosed its grip on the Endurance's broken hull. Having lived on the Endurance and with inside of its carcass for so long, its sudden absence generated a tremendous sense of isolation. It's hard to understand this from our armchairs around the hearth, as the prospects of the men hadn't changed through the wreckage sinking into 2,000 or so fathoms beneath the sea ice. But this was a monumental moment in the lives of each man present, underlining, as it did, the stark boundary between their past and their extremely challenging future. The leads increased in size and duration, making any trek across the ice increasingly dangerous, though hunting had to continue and occasional forays to dump camp, to collect this or that newly recognized necessity still occurred. Shackleton spent two weeks of December in his sleeping bag, brought low by an attack of sciatica, a form of neuralgia affecting the legs from the hip downwards. His infirmity and inability to keep a tight rein on order in his camp put the boss in a bad mood when he emerged from his tent, but he found his crew still cohesive though somewhat apprehensive over their present position and what it meant for their prospects. The promise of crossing the Antarctic Circle marking the halfway point between their entrapment and their potential salvation at Paulette Island, lifted flagging spirits, and a southerly blizzard, promising a good push north across that boundary, proved a welcome change in the weather for perhaps the first time ever. A reversal in the wind on the 18th pushed them back the way they came. More worryingly, the general northwest drift experienced to date began to alternate with almost pure easterly movement, which would if it kept up as the new pattern, throw them off course from their mooted shot at Paulette Island and the huts and provisions thereon. Shackleton convened with Wilde and Hurley, proposing another attempt to haul the boats toward Grahamland, where a small party might cross the peaks and raise the alarm with the whaling fleets plying the Gurlash Strait and Wilhelmina Bay, and the three men scouted the potential path westward on the 20th. Finding relatively flat sea ice on the route, and seeing value in giving everyone some hard work to keep them from dwelling on their situation in idleness, Shackleton announced the second hauling would start on the 23rd. Midsummer's Day on the 22nd stood in as a proxy Christmas day, Christmas dinner comprising a lavish, in volume, affair to celebrate the birth of the baby death of the old Saturnalia and to feast on the food that would otherwise be left behind. And a Merry Christmas to us all, each and every one. Everyone remembered the first attempt at sledging with the boat too well, and most hoped the boss would give up the effort in similarly sharpish fashion. Shackleton woke the men at three the following morning, determined to take advantage of the lower temperatures afforded at night, thereby negating the worst effects the thaw caused on the sea ice surface. Eighteen men harnessed up to relay the newly named James Caird, the whaler, and the Dudley Docker, the number one cutter, forward. While dog teams worked to bring the stores and equipment up in turn. As is always the case with relaying, the relayers covered the distance achieved many times over, and the one and a quarter miles made good in the first day represents a considerable improvement over the previous sledging effort. But it was all efficiencies and practice rather than an attitude that made the difference. Where optimism fueled the first attempt to reach Graham Land, the second was almost entirely a matter of sullen obedience. Gotta leave it there and make the donuts. On the 27th, McNeish's reserves of obedience temporarily dried up and he refused to obey Worsley's orders to commence hauling, claiming that the ship's articles no longer held sway, seeing as there was no longer any ship. McNeish never had much respect for Worsley, and there's some speculation that under anyone else's eye the carpenter wouldn't have cut up in this manner. Incidents dating back to the transit to Madeira coloured Chippy's opinion of the New Zealanders' professionalism and he dug his heels in, refusing to heed Worsley's instructions. Shackleton, sensing the need before matters came to this head, had kept the ship's articles. On being recalled from the scouting party to deal with the truculent carpenter, he read aloud from them, before the entire crew, the passages pertaining to the crew following orders, whether on the ship, in the boats or ashore, gilding the lily to his advantage somewhat and adding that the crew would be paid for the full term of their service under him where normally their pay would end at the loss of their ship. Shackleton's speech, part call to dutiful service, part bluff, put down McNeish's nascent and technically correct mutiny before it got any serious backers. Another attempt to disobey a direct order could get McNeish shot, rightly or wrongly, so he towed the line. But Shackleton never forgave the carpenter this aberration, figuring Chippy nearly caused an irreparable loss of morale and a crippling of confidence in his leadership. It may have been that Shackleton, recognising the proposed 60 mile haul beyond his crew, was about to call a halt when McNeish made his stand. But the sledging carried on for another two days, perhaps for good measure in terms of showing the crew who was boss. Ending the march was Shackleton's decision and no one else's. Though the apparently impassable ice may have given him some encouragement, and a half-mile backtrack to a firmer patch on which to establish camp supports this hypothesis. The exhausted men turned in without a meal that evening, but the flow they floated on was nowhere near as sturdy as that at their previous long-term home. The ice cracked the following day, forcing a move to a new campsite. The ice behind them broke up enough to preclude further retreat or any attempt to salvage materials or stores from ocean camp, which might have come as a relief to the exhausted crew if their current situation didn't bode so ill. Greenstreet joined Ord Lees in proposing that every animal coming within range of their hunting abilities be laid in, the pair giving voice to a sentiment common throughout the camp, but Shackleton rounded on his second officer for his pessimism. Shackleton's leadership ploy notwithstanding, food was running short. Ord recognising the boss's intractability on the matter, gave up trying to talk his way to a full larder and began making unsanctioned hunting forays on his own. On one such foray, he nearly ended up inside a leopard seal for his troubles. The animal, tracking the skier from below the ice, made three lunges at Ord from the open leads between floes and chased him across the surface. Lees shouted for assistance and Wilde came up with his rifle. The animal turned on Wilde, who fired several shots into it before the animal died. Besides the meat and blubber of the seal itself, the kill gave the crew a rare treat in the form of 60 undigested fish in its stomach, echoing a similar windfall experienced by Scott's eastern party on the shores of Inexpressible Island four years earlier. After this incident, Shackleton charged Worsley with minding Ordlees. Keeping him from freaking the seamen as much as preventing his getting into trouble with the wildlife and geography. In January 1916, the wind stalled and the ice stopped with it. Patience camp lying just south of the circle. The food situation prompted a hard decision to cut consumption. On the 14th of January, Shackleton tasked Wild with shooting the dogs. 27 animals from Wild's, McIlroy's, Crean's, and Marston's teams were led out to a ridge of pressure ice and killed. The killing upset everyone, many of the men blaming Shackleton's obstinate optimism which prevented them killing more seals and penguins when the opportunity arose. The cull proved particularly upsetting to Wilde, who pulled the trigger. He wrote of the experience, This duty fell upon me and was the worst job I ever had in my life. I have known many men I would rather shoot than the worst of the dogs. Hurley's team made a final run to ocean camp, returning with 900 pounds of stores, after which Wild shot those dogs too. The end of the dogs constrained Shackleton's decision framework in that a march to Graham Land was no longer an option. Good old British manhauling received its last praise in Bertie Bower's final diary entry. On the 21st, a southerly blizzard pushed Patience Camp across the Antarctic Circle, the crossing celebrated with an extra bannock each. When the blizzard blew itself out, Worsley and Wordie trekked to an iceberg to gain some altitude and assess ice conditions. Their reconnaissance showed the ice wasn't breaking out. Mushy and cracked as it was, the ice remained densely packed to the horizon. Frustratingly, a nested rotation within the broader gyre of Weddell Sea sea ice placed ocean camp closer to Snow Hill Island than Patience Camp. Bugger it. Previously concerned about sending his men on a quest that might lead to injury or death in the increasingly unstable conditions, Shackleton finally caved the pressure that the second cutter, newly named the Stancom Wills, should be retrieved to the relief of the sailors who knew the Caird and the Docker wouldn't suffice if all hands needed to embark into open water at the same time. The sailors' mood was also boosted by the cache of contraband ocean camp salvage they managed to secrete into their tent. Shackleton turning a blind eye to the flouting of his rule for expediency's sake and, I like to think, that begrudging men in such circumstances some small luxuries in the form of tins of whatever food they'd managed to scrounge went against his overall sense of human goodwill. During a final attempt to salvage goods from ocean camp, open leads prevented Macklin's sledges making progress. Blackborough contested the fairness of the shut-eye distribution practice, thinking a trick of intonation employed to alert the nominator as to the size of the portion. To quash the concern and any ire stemming from it, he was placed in charge of the process. When discarded seal skeletons were picked over for enough blubber to keep the stove going, the dire circumstances prophesied by Audley's and Green Street looked to be coming to fruition. Shackleton continued to disregard any mention of a problem in the seal-meat stocks to hand, but his optimism no longer convinced everyone that Ord Lees, rebuked once more for his pessimistic statements in early February, was incorrect in his assessment. Cynicism, poison to Shackleton's style of leadership, was fomenting as the boss's statements departed from hard realities. None of the sailors left us diaries by which to gauge their mood at this point, but by other accounts they were becoming overall despondent and troublesome, and I think this offers the only possible rationale for Shackleton's continued resistance to laying in months' worth of food when the opportunity arose, rather than weeks' worth, as was the habit. The sailors came south with an expectation of remaining aboard the Endurance in warmer climes through the winter. Unlike some of the scientists and officers, they were never driven by a desire to match their mettle against that of heroic era exploratory forebears, and without that element of proud stoicism in their mental framework, the same sort of proud stoicism that saw Scott and the poll party die horribly, they weren't weathering the travails well. It seems Shackleton had their mental well-being foremost in many of the decisions he made during this period, whether those decisions served that well-being well or not. The situation resolved itself with the arrival of a daily penguins. 300 of the formerly attired birds going into the larder and the blubber stove. Bye, to my port. With flour, cocoa, and tea running low or out, Shackleton and Audleighs conspired to find excuses to ease the new all meat diet with occasional largesse in handing out the increasingly rare luxuries. Flour as a luxury. Think about that. In a similar vein to the contrived anniversaries and memorials celebrated at Cape Denison, birthdays and any interesting day in the almanac saw the dwindling stash of non meat foods distributed and meal sizes and numbers increased. Episode 57 Part uh, B, yeah. I thought I could finish it last time I was out and about, and yeah, things have just been running hot. So here I am in my cabin on the On March 9th, they dug sledges and equipment out from under snow deposited by a blizzard. The pack ice transmitted the sensation of the southern ocean swell. Seventy miles from Paulette Island, they were nearing the end of their entrapment in the ice. This was both cheering and problematic. While everyone wanted to finally make progress under their own steam. Launching boats into leads in which those boats could be immediately crushed to matchsticks by the action of swell on the flows held little appeal. The men went through their boat drill, and everyone knew their role, but whether or not they could apply it depended, now, on the manner in which they left the ice. The mountain tops of Joinville Island came in sight, the first land anyone spotted in fifteen months, but the ice held them and carried them north too close to launch into and too loose for any further sledge crossings. Shackleton kept his eye on the northernmost extension of the Antarctic Peninsula. Joinville Island lies immediately north of the smaller Paulette Island and fretted about their velocity. The last dogs were shot on the 30th of March. In contrast with the previous canine cull, these were eaten, yielding compliments about the quality and taste of their meat rather than lamentations about their deaths. Around the same time, the opening ice permitted visits by several seals, which were killed and butchered in short order, easing tensions over the larder and negating calls to begin in on the sledging rations, held in reserve for the boat journey. Killing the dogs didn't solve the blubber shortage. Only a week's supply remained toward the end of March, and hot meals cut down to two per day, washed down with cold water dark jokes about cannibalism began doing the rounds. Marston came in for some ribbing, the well-built artist being encouraged not to lose condition and people assessing what parts of him might constitute the tastiest cuts. Marston got pretty sick of this, as you would, and began avoiding Worsley and Green Street, the most regular among his taunters, which is a difficult thing to do when you're trapped in a tiny camp on an ice floe. Greenstreet spilt a mug of milk in his tent during a disagreement with Clark, and in spite of the centuries-old proverb, came close to tears over the loss of his hot beverage. Clark immediately tipped some of his allocation into Greenstreet's mug, quickly followed by the other tentmates—Worsley, Kerr, Rickinson, Macklin, Audley's and Blackborough. No word was spoken. The motion transmitted to the ice floe by the oceanic swell increased causing Ord to become seasick. It also caused the camp ice flow to crack across its centre, and Shackleton instituted a watch-and-watch watch roster so they could launch boats at a moment's notice. The ice accelerated, its drift more dependent on currents than on wind, and on April 7th, the mountain peaks of Clarence and Elephant Islands showed above the horizon. Unexpected shifts to the west and back east again notwithstanding, the ice carried the men north, out of reach of Paulette Island, but almost on course for Clarence and Elephant Islands, the eastern outliers of the South Shetlands. And it's there that we leave the Weddell Sea Wanderers until next episode, when I'll recount the launching of boats and what followed. Shouting out the Rod Millen this episode, who's known me for longer than most people and still has kind things to say about me. Take care and appreciate your coffee. <laughs>